0: future design podcast hi everyone this is takatoshi shibayama the host of the future design podcast today I have blair jordan who's the managing partner of restructure advisors a canadian restructuring consultant dedicated to the cannabis industry Blair has been in the banking industry for 18 years and has entered the cannabis industry by taking over a distressed cannabis production company, going through the ups and downs of this emerging industry. He's going to tell us what he has learned and how he would start this industry from scratch in a new geography.
1: Future Design Podcast.
0: It's interesting that, you know, we were both bankers before and then now you're a restructuring advisor for cannabis companies, which is, which is, which tells that there's so much maturity in this industry now, yes, right? Yes. Even though your country has legalized it about two years ago, I think, uh, and you're maybe two, two more years before that, um, you know, now that you're already seeing this trajectory of companies from production to all the way to the end product, uh, and now you're starting to see failures in, in certain con- uh, companies that are struggling with financial issues, management issues, um, you know, whatever, that, whatever, whatever those issues may be. Now, here are common, uh, unique traits to these companies that you don't actually see in normal companies that takes them down this path to failure.
1: Look, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it would be very familiar to you when we looked back at the first tech crash, Right. Um, it is a nascent industry. Um, it is an industry that has very large market potential, global market potential. As a result, you get a lot of money flooding in to ideas around that industry. And, and from that, some fantastic companies were built. Um, but any industry at the end of the day, after it goes through its birth phase, you know, it's it's got to do a couple of things. It's got to actually generate revenue and it's got to make profits. Um, And there is a gap between the birth of the industry and the realization that the same old rules apply to an industry where there's a lot of exuberant retail investment money that chases those stocks. And and certainly that is what we saw in Canada.
0: So now I want to talk about the cannabis industry. Now it has seen a birth of this huge production companies all the way to the end products. Now, what can we learn about how these companies were formed, because I find that, as you said before, uh, before we started recording, I mean, these companies were so much in the attraction of VCs and various investors looking at the industry as super high growth uh, industry, right? And, but, you know, what I can kind of assume is, is that, you know, a lot of these companies were really, maybe it was black market, you know, producers that came in to become legalized businesses or it could have been you know proper business people like you that came into this business and said you know i see the medical benefits of this product let's make a real business out of this so can you talk us through the origins of a lot of these companies that came through uh during this time sure so when canada legalized
1: um i mean i think canada was under no illusions that one of the one of the express purposes of legalization in canada was to Eliminate the legacy market, the black market, so to speak, and and bring it into the light. Regulate it, um, you know, ensure that the product that was sold to consumers, medical consumers or recreational consumers, met certain standards. And um, you know, in the course of doing that, there was every expectation that people that had been working in the legacy market, who were generally very good growers and very good business people, would come into the legal regime. And, and so you did see that happen, and they. They, met, they made an interesting marriage with um, people from the street, finance people, and the, the tremendous potential of the industry globally, first in Canada and then with, with eyes on the globe, meant that a lot of retail money, particularly some institutional money, but primarily retail money, came in and, and made it possible for the Canadian cannabis companies to grow tremendously fast. And... You know, there was a thought, and there still is a thought in Canada because we were really the first large industrial country to legalize, that we have a lot of expertise, intellectual property, that we can export or take to other countries. Um, Certainly, Europe has been a very large target of Canadian cannabis companies. Like any retail investor or um, stock market phenomena, though, that is chasing super high growth, sometimes valuations get ahead of reality around revenues and profitability and and that is what we saw we saw after legalization in canada coming up to two years ago there was a series of disappointments distribution wasn't perfect in canada we're 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 liberal in the sense that we legalized but we're conservative in the sense that it's quite controlled it's a quasi pharmaceutical industry here so distribution at the provincial level didn't catch up with production capacity and legalization globally didn't catch up with the international dreams of a lot of large Canadian cannabis companies. Hence, you've ended up, you know, I feel like we're in the first couple of innings of a distress cycle. There's some very large companies that have planted the Canadian flag around the map and I think are very actively retrenching. Um, And I think personally that is healthy. You're you're seeing management teams change. Uh, I like to think I'm part of that change. I'm not out of the legacy market. You and I worked on a trading floor, that's about as far from um, producing cannabis as you could ever get. Um, But I do believe it is a viable global business. And as you marry the new set of skills um, in the second generation of this business, we're going to create some very long lasting companies around the world.
0: And what are the characteristics of these companies that fail? Because I can assume that, you know, in the production side, you know, there were probably a lot of like illegal growers that came into the business and tried to legalize their own business. But, you know, and but, you know, they're not traditional business people, as you you, you and I are very accustomed to. Um, are there any other traits of these failed companies that you've seen before?
1: Yeah, I think the largest trait in Canada that when, when I look at the companies that are distressed right now is overexpansion. They used the availability of cheap equity to plant the flag, um, not only across Canada with some very, very large facilities, but around the world. And I think they they got caught in a lack of understanding around how slowly our provinces, provincial governments in Canada, were actually going to legalize distribution. So you ended up with very, very expensive facilities. Expensive because these are very large facilities, 400,000, 600,000, a million square feet sometimes. Very large, complex facilities, very expensive to build because it's the first time we're going through this. You ended up with very large facilities and production capacities that couldn't get to market. And as a result, because they're public companies, I think the revenue expectations were not met, particularly in the last half of last year. And, you know, is that really the fault of the legacy market? Certainly, I would say that there wasn't the business savvy in a lot of cases to surround themselves with good governance. Um, but I understand the desire for growth. It looked for a while like this market was just going to keep going and going, and a lot of people built some really valuable things. They've just run out of capital, right? So we're going through a distress cycle, and we are going to see stronger companies emerge on the back end. So I think overexpansion is is a significant problem. Um, I think. You could argue that cost control, again, because of the nascent nature of the industry has been a problem. Um, You know, other than a couple of very isolated cases, there really hasn't been any active malfeasance by sort of black market, organized crime type people. Um, There's been some regulatory slip ups for sure, and that's hurt a couple of companies. But I think it's, it's basic capital structure 101 and growth 101. And and we saw it in the tech industry, and we're seeing it in
0: this. Yeah, that's true. During the tech bubble, there was so much money going into it uh, that it created so many different websites or companies online that it was not really necessary as a as a you know uh, market fit businesses. And I've seen this over and over, even with the blockchain industry. You know, there were so many ICOs, and they were raising money for. You know, ideas that never really can really you know fit the market, and and, and in terms of like cannabis, it, it seems to me that you know there was so much production happening, but not enough consumption of it, or no not not enough demand with just within Canada. So they wanted to export it out to some other places. You know, they. I was I was investing in one company called Aurora uh, before, and they were buying companies in Germany and in, in Australia to create more distribution. And they were also making production facilities in Denmark and all these other places. And I I kind of find that you know because you know in Canada or in the U.S. you think oh everybody's gonna smoke weed or they're gonna you know take. Cannabis or, you know, or some other form of, of cannabis product, CBD in particular, all across road, uh, the world that, you know, we can make tons of this stuff. But it actually, you know, the world hasn't really caught up yet. You know, Asia in particular, Asia in broad in, uh, in particular, from all the way to Japan all, and to, to the Middle East has not caught up with that at all. Right. And maybe it's only a small park. It's in Europe. And then you have the whole North American continent, and then you have, you know, in South America is like slowly waking up to this thing. But you know, there's a lot of hopes and dreams for this business. But obviously, there's practicality, there's logic in how this industry can grow. So, from your, from your you know, um, you know, investment banker type of mindset, uh, what where do you see the growth of this business uh, actually happening?
1: I think it depends on the jurisdiction. I mean I think in Canada um, we, are, we are we are rapidly moving towards what I'd call generation 2 to cannabis um, I think we're beginning to apply more regular if you will business ideas to cannabis um, you know a great parallel is let's think of Heinz and tomato sauce you know that is that is an end branded product that ends up in your your pantry and you consume it does Heinz own The trucking company that ships the tomatoes out, do they they own the tomato farms? They don't. It's a disaggregated group of specialists knit together in a supply chain. One of the things that has hindered cannabis in Canada, and and I think in most jurisdictions that legalize, is the early rules sort of required or they made necessary that vertical integration. It, It is very, very unusual to get one company management team that is very good at growing a very complex plant, then extracting it, then manufacturing products, then, you know, designing CPGs and then distributing. That is a very large skill set. So I think where the growth comes from globally is is a sort of reset of the cannabis value chain. And we're seeing that in Canada. People are beginning to talk about, look, we're specialists at CPGs. That's what we're going to be good at. We're going to design formulations, we're going to design product formats that we think consumers want to buy and we're going to distribute them. You're seeing another select group of companies saying, hey, we we don't want to do that. We want to be the intermediaries. We want to take the biomass and refine it to go into those products. And I think ultimately you're going to see, much like you do in other agricultural products, a group of businesses who say, we're really good at farming. We're really good at growing this product and we'll just grow it and we'll sell it for the margin we can get in very large scale at very low cost um, to the people who are processing it and making products and and that is what is going to emerge it will depend on each jurisdiction how how fast that catches up canada is certainly going that way the us is something different the us still has not descheduled cannabis thc the psychoactive drug it is federally illegal um, it has been legalized in terms of non enforcement at the state level, but you cannot transport CBD across, or uh, THC, pardon me, across state lines. That means there's no, it's very hard to build a national business that is disaggregated and specialized in the US. In some of the large markets, California, I think they're beginning to think about it, but we're not there yet. I'm having a number of conversations with the industry in Europe right now, very fruitful, very interesting conversations. You pointed out earlier, the Canadian majors uh, went into Europe very aggressively, and they did. They paid a lot of money to build very large facilities. I think it is safe to say the same dynamic is really coming true in Europe. That is a much slower to adopt recreational and medical market. It's just regulated differently than Canada. There's probably going to be too much supply for the regulated medical market to take up, uh, ultimately, um, in, in Europe. That will change over time. I believe that, but nothing happens overnight. And I think Asia will inevitably follow in time.
0: So to me, you know, production in general, it seems like a very commoditized product anyway, right? I mean, I even though you you say that growing wheat is a very complex thing, I think if there's so many production happening, uh, you know, within U.S. and Canada, they're just going to, you know, butt heads to each other, especially in the U.S. when the federal um law passes that you know you can it legalizes uh medical marijuana or recreational ma- marijuana you don't need that many production guys so it's just going to be a very commoditized product and then once you get to this kind of m- more uh finer uh product and like just before in the beginning you said gw farmer that was another company that i was looking at as well um uh, that made a, a pass through of the FDA, you made this end product that's very valuable because it's rubber stamped by the FDA. I mean, do you think that the value of this business is obviously has moved away from production? Because that, that part, is, I think, is going to be consolidated heavily. And then now it's going to be distribution and then end product. That's kind of where I see the value is. Uh, do, you think, do you think that that would uh, replicate? elsewhere in the world as well. Yes, I absolutely do. I mean, uh, our our lives,
1: um, at least in the developed Western economies, and I include most of Asia in that, uh, you know, we are surrounded by branded goods, um, consumer packaged goods companies that spend a lot of money trying to get us to buy their brand. Um, You know, so I think it's definitely going to go there. I think there's going to be a very interesting and valuable medical offshoot with APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients, much like GW, GW Pharma, there's going to be a very interesting, and it's already developed in North America, and it's developing in Europe, nutraceutical and cosmeceutical, um, active wellness ingredients that are not medically improved. Um, so you can't make medical claims, but you can indicate that they may treat something. You know, one of the helpful ways to, a very useful lens to think about the cannabis market, I think, is, is through the lens of alcohol or tobacco. Um, you think about alcohol. I mean, there are a number of, let's, let's take a, a beer. Everybody likes a beer. So there's a number of choices. You can buy from one of the large global conglomerates. It's probably a fairly low price, standardized um, taste. Uh, it's pretty much going to taste the same across every country. Your classic Budweiser, for example, if you like that kind of thing. But the market has fragmented. Consumers are different. There's some regional brand players um, that sell in a in a country or in a region that have a differentiated product. And then of course there are craft producers, right? We've seen the uh, the tremendous rise of that in Japan probably the last five or ten years. You know, there's a lot of craft brewers, whereas when we were living there, there there really probably wasn't. And those are providing highly differentiated connoisseur-targeted products that, you know, certainly in the alcohol industry, craft beer has captured a very large Meaningful portion of the market. It's not a majority by any stretch, but it's meaningful. I think cannabis follows the same thing. Um, You know, we talk about cannabis being an agricultural commodity. It absolutely is. Um, But for a connoisseur who's using it for a particular terpene profile or cannabinoid profile that comes out of a particular plant, there's always going to be room for an indoor high-quality craft grower to supply that to that demand. And it's just the price will clear the respective markets, right? So, you know, tobacco runs the same way.
0: Countries in Asia, particularly like Thailand, is starting to, or actually already opened up to medical marijuana, but you don't want to see the same cycle happening in in Asia, right? Because it's it's not even useful to start a new company that does production, new company does this and that. Um, What do you think is the healthy way to grow the cannabis industry uh, that are, companies, uh, countries that are opening up to introduce this medical product or, you know, in any, any form of use?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, look at who's gone before, right? I mean, there's a couple, there's a number of legalized regimes, um, and you can choose really from the experiences of those regimes, the, the path that best fits, you know, the particular culture in that country. Um, you know, I think Canada legalized, I mean, it was it happened in two years, but it really took 20. It was a series of court cases and decisions that led to legalization. We legalized medically and we legalized recreationally very quickly. Um, as a result, our distribution systems didn't catch up. And that's what's created this disconnect between a, a lot of production capacity and perhaps arguably less demand than people thought. As you pointed out, we there was an expectation that we were going to be able to sell a ton of it. Well, we are a fairly conservative country. You can't advertise cannabis here. How can you build a brand without advertising? There's tricky ways. You've got to think about it, but it's very tough. You know, that's going to be a model that some countries choose to follow. You know, we are very regulated. We have a very good regulator. Um, They're very thorough. It is quasi pharmaceutical. Um, you know, other countries. Um, let's take Australia for example they're groping their way ahead with a much, much more controlled medical regime. You know, Germany is, is a large medical regime, uh, but it's still, at this time, purely medically focused. Um, so, you know, when country, countries think about building this industry, and, and it is a very large contributor in Canada already in terms of jobs and tax revenue, and, and that is important, and, and, and in addition to the legitimate medical impact, I guess all I would say is look at the culture of the country and the policymakers should look at the models out there and choose the pieces that work best for them.
0: Yeah, I was reading about the tax revenues that you just pointed out. I think in 2019, California was, uh, said, reported that they had 12 point something, you know, billion billion in tax revenue and it's projected to become $30 billion by 2024. That's a huge number. And also the amount of jobs they created, they said it's about like a hundred thousand people were employed by this uh, medical marijuana industry. And also the reduction in costs for nar- narcotics bureaus uh, to lo- for law-, law enforcement. Right. So I don't even know what that number is, but I'm sure it's in the billions as well. I think it was like three and a half billion that the U.S. spends on law enforcement on uh, uh on, on marijuana enforcement so there's a huge amount of cost savings and and, and potential revenue coming in from tax now this is something that you know a lot of countries need to start thinking about and and uh, again i'm not promoting this but there's a these numbers are in the billions and and this is a huge uh impact on the economy as well so in in terms of like I guess, you know, growing this industry, you know, countries will start to think about these uh, real numbers because especially after this COVID situation where, you know, a lot of people have lost jobs, a lot of governments have spent so much subsidies on giving money to people, uh, you know, small businesses or even personal uh, to recover from this economic disaster. I mean, they have to look towards new revenue, right? And also the country that we were talking about in Japan, you know, from 2012, they've turn their their, their target to, the, to tourism, you know, and I remember that before 2012, there weren't that many tourists in Japan, but they, all of a sudden they, they said, okay, we want to focus on tourism and boom, the tourism industry 5X, you know, from, from 2012 to where it was pre-COVID. So I think this is an interesting industry that people, uh, countries are, might, you know, start looking at for saving some kind of economic crisis going forward.
1: Yes, it'll clearly have a very large positive impact in in all the ways that you mentioned. There's definitely tax revenue. Uh, there's a lot of jobs, and frankly speaking, I mean, it, it is a complex um, supply chain, logistics chain. They're they're generally quite well paid, good jobs. I think um, you know it saves a ton of money on law enforcement. It's not something they have to worry about. Um, so you know, there's a there's a bunch of positive benefits around that supporting this industry. You know the to be just very blunt about it, the, the difficult thing that governments and societies have to get their mind around is the, the stigma that has been introduced in the past. Um, you know, it is a plant that has very legitimate medical benefits. It is a plant that's used on a recreational basis. No country's fallen apart. You know, Canada has not fallen apart. We haven't seen a spike in crime rates. Um, we haven't seen... An increase in crashes. Um, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence from Colorado, which was one of the first states to legalize in the US, the, the first state, you know, violent crime has probably decreased. You know, and that is because when you legalize something that is previously controlled by organized crime, as, as narcotics are generally around the world, illegal narcotics, you eliminate the capacity and the need for violence. You, you bring it into the light and and those elements either adapt or they they filter out of the business and and that's what we're beginning to see with cannabis in canada it's not perfect those elements still exist but we've taken steps and we are taking steps to to make this a legitimate business you know there's product safety elements as well Um, you know health canada for example requires very stringent certificate of analysis and you know very stringent rules around use of pesticides and that kind of stuff on the plants that are gonna be ingested. The Europeans are even more strict. Everything has to be built to an EU GMP, good manufacturing practices uh, standard, which is very, very high. And that helps to ensure consumer safety.
0: Yeah, it's a super interesting topic that we could probably discuss forever, but uh, you know, I think that you know, we've got so much great insights from you. At, thank you very much for your time. Hello everybody! Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you!